0: Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Has neoliberalism taken a grip on Welsh life? Has devolution been a success? To join us to discuss this and their new book, The Welsh Way, we have Hugh Williams. Hello, Hugh. Hello. Mavli Serial. Hello, Mavli.
1: Hello.
0: And Kieran Smith. Hello, Kieran. Hello. So I don't know who the best person to ask about this is, but I just want to know, how did this book happen? How were the authors... Chosen.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been quite a while in the pipeline, if you like, this book. Daniel Evans, or Dr Daniel Evans, to give him his full title, and I um, had conversations about this quite a while ago. I was probably back in about 2017, partly inspired or with a view to the book on neoliberalism in Scotland, that had been influential and had, well, raised a lot of discussion. But we wanted to do something a, a little different. And so we put a proposal together, contacted a few people and perhaps then have actually written in the, in, the, in the final book as, as it is now. and that's really part of the story I suppose and where Kieran comes in because we put the initial proposal together and as a lot of these projects do it stalled uh, for a little while Dan and I went off and did other things and then uh, thankfully Kieran came uh, on the scene as it were and, and persuaded us that it was something that we should really yeah, return to and think about it again, and um, that's really I suppose about a year and a half ago, two years ago now, isn't it, Kieran? That we had those conversations and started discussing as well with Parthian, and I think that combination of the conversations with Kieran and Parthian have yeah produced a book that I think was a lot better than the initial proposal that that uh, Dan Ikin came, came up with.
2: The problem was that the the project had stalled somewhat, you know, with other things going on in everyone else's lives. Uh, But that that period of stalling just so happened to coincide with a period of unemployment for me. (laughs) So having more time on my hands, um, you know, I'd known about the project anyway, although wasn't involved directly. But having that time sort of yeah it gave me a bit of space to think about how we might develop it as a project. It's worth saying I think that it was initially imagined um, as an academic text, so it was going to be a um, sort of your more kind of academic style of, of of intervention where you'd have I think in the initial proposal there were maybe nine or ten chapters of you know the usual length six to six thousand words plus. And I think what the conversations we had when we sort of tried to restart the project were involved trying to think differently about, well, how much of an impact would an academic text really make on the wider public sphere in Wales, and whether it was worth thinking about a book that would, would reach a wider audience, basically. And I think we, you know, we made a decision pretty early on to sort of try to expand the remit really invite more uh, more contributors from different kinds of backgrounds to reflect on what's happening at the moment in wales and i and i think that is you know one of the big strengths of the book is is that we made that decision and i think it's probably sold by now probably maybe 10 times as many uh-huh. as it would have had it been the original academic book so yeah that was probably the right decision in the end
1: yeah too tricky then Yeah, we obviously um, thought that there was a wide array of people who could contribute to something that would be perhaps a a slightly more polemic um, and and a more deliberate intervention, if you like, in the political discourse. Um, And and hopefully that's produced something that's, you know, is perhaps more worthwhile and gets a wider readership.
3: Yeah, I would obviously encourage everyone to read it because I think, like, as Kieran said, it's got that... um, it's got that like punchiness and it's got, um. it's not dry, it's not like super academic, it's like, it's it's really, really readable and it's really interesting and I think um, a lot of that does come from the approach that was taken with like bringing in different voices, I think like it's noted in the introduction anyway, but you know, most of the people contributing, they're not like establishment figures they're not like um senior figures most of all you know it's activists it's younger people it's people from different backgrounds and I think like the perspectives really reflect that that it it's a challenging and interesting book for anyone with like any interest in Welsh politics or society to read.
0: There has been some criticism uh that the authors are disproportionately white. I mean, do you think that criticism is fair? Or do you think there should be more effort to try and find a more diverse range of authors? Or do you think that's sort of one of the bigger problems we have in Welsh civic society, really?
1: I haven't really seen those comments myself. I mean, I can only say as editors. But we work very hard to be as inclusive as we could. It's not actually always that easy to get contributors for these sorts of discussions at all, regardless of background because in many ways that discussion around Welsh politics is really not as diverse, it's not as in depth, and it's not as well informed as, as it should be. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting sort of results of this was in terms of trying to be inclusive, one of the things we did in the end, uh, and you'll see that in the final chapter, is decide that actually what we could do is provide a platform for certain voices. So one, one of the chapters is actually an interview with people from Beale Town Matters, because that's one way to bring more people in. Uh, and I think that's a comment that uh, Dylan Moore made in his review, that actually that's something we need to think of, not so much in terms of this book, but in future in terms of giving a platform. How is it that we go about, as people who are involved in publishing and creating pieces like this, works like this, how is it that we provide a platform? And hopefully the book starts to do some of that in, in terms of the contributions.
3: It's important to note as well, like, not all the contributors are white. and So I do think to some extent that's not entirely fair criticism. But I do, I totally accept, you know, there's a broader problem here within, like, the Welsh public sphere and Welsh politics and discussion in terms of the people who are able to play, like, an active role and who are able to contribute and, like, you know, most importantly, who's actually listened to. But I think the the driving forces behind that are like they're material and they're structural, and it's not you know there's often and this is something I write about in the book is you know there's often this drive within Welsh politics to towards this sort of politics of like representation, and that we need as long as we can just tick the box of having like women and people of colour, LGBT people in certain positions, then we've solved those underlying problems of um and that shut people out but that's that's not really how you do it and i do think we need to do a lot deeper work in terms of bringing those perspectives in and removing like the real barriers there are to people's voices being heard and and then that needs to cut across um our whole society
1: you know in that context a chapter like the one that um savannah jones Contributed is an interesting one because it really touches exactly on that issue. Uh, that in terms of reforming the curriculum and looking at the decolonizing of the curriculum, we need to do more than just look at that element of representation and what can ultimately often be tokenism. And that in terms of how we educate people, in terms of how we, we address um, our teaching, that we need to take that critical approach that looks not just at those elements of representation and identity but also that we look at the problems in terms of class and equality. And Savannah's argument, as I understand it, is unless you actually approach it in that two-pronged manner, if you like, we're never really going to be able to address some of these structural issues that face us, uh, of which there are many symptoms.
0: Kieran, what goes through your mind when you hear someone like Mark Drakeford rail against neoliberalism, but then, as he's professed you know, throughout this book, interact so readily with it. Why do you think his actions don't match his rhetoric?
2: Um, I think it's characteristic of many voices within the Labour Party to rest on some of the mythologies that surround the idea of Wales being a left-wing socialist radical space. Some of those mythologies are built on reality and are valid and have currency that you know, they deserve to have. But some of them are, are just that. They're, they're, they're empty rhetoric and empty mythologies. And I think it's it's benefited that many people within the Labour Party, particularly since the, the since devolution has happened, to overstate their radicalism. I, I, I don't think that is a particularly controversial thing to say. And I think, what do I think when I hear Mark Drakeford say that? Well, I'm sure Mark Drakeford is a, a, a well-meaning person. Uh, in fact, I've got no doubt about that. But the problem is that the party that he leads is, for me, not doing enough to, to fulfil its remit and to develop some of that radicalism that, that that did come from Welsh historical reality, right? And that's what's frustrating. I think I feel frustrated when I hear that kind of rhetoric coming from someone like Mark Drakeford is because I think more could be done and not enough is being done, essentially. I think we have opportunities in Wales, given the, the, you know, the historical basis that we're working from and the proletarian nature of the, of the society. I think there are opportunities, but we need to be working harder to, to, to take those opportunities.
1: We could probably have a really nice, long conversation, after around um, the inner workings of the Labour Party here, because in addition to what Kieran is talking about there, you've got to think about the Labour Party machine and the way that that's inculcated with neoliberalism. And so, you know, as much as we can look at Drakeford as, a, as an important figure, you've got to have some understanding as well of the forces that they work within the party. And that's something that we draw attention to in the introduction is the nature of one partyism, how that inflects our politics. And obviously in the case of Drakeford, you and I know, that he won his leadership campaign off the back of Welsh Labour grassroots, momentum in Wales, had a huge, you know, support base there, went into government, but that's not materialized in terms of any of his policies. So there's some interesting questions there around well, what's going on in the Labour Party? That those ideas, that sort of ideology is not actually welcome in the inner circle. And I think that's sort of is one aspect where we see neoliberalism at work as an ideology in, in terms of the ideas and beliefs as I, as I say in the hierarchy if you like of the Labour Party.
0: Yeah it, w- it wouldn't be accurate to say that the Labour Party is one uh, the Welsh Labour Party is one homogenous thing is it Hugh? I mean you, you can't just say that the Senedd group is Welsh Labour you have to think of Welsh Labour as not only the Senedd M S S, is but the MPs in Westminster, the people who work at Transport House, the trade unions. It's not not as easily delineated as saying that Welsh Labour is Mark Drakewood and the people whom he has immediate control over.
1: No, certainly. And, you know, in many ways, I'm pretty sure there'll be a lot of Labour Party stalwarts who would look at this book and agree with a lot of the analysis in there. Um, And that there is, as I say, a big constituency within the membership and perhaps in terms of the wider uh, Labour vote that I think would, you know, readily sort of um, agree to the analysis and hopefully in some ways what this book is able to do is to sort of cash out in detail. Well, actually, how does neoliberalism work in these different contexts? And, you know, that's why I think one of the advantages with the wide array of sort of themes and contributors we have is that you can actually see neoliberalism, as it were, broken down and shown in different aspects uh, of our sort of political social life, how it actually works. Uh, And I think that's perhaps one of the, well, it was one of the more interesting parts of the book for me as an editor, certainly, you know, listening to a lot of experts in different policy fields and seeing, well, actually, you know, you can break it down and see how it does impact on policy and, you know, the way in which people work in an everyday sense.
3: Yeah, I think um, it's just worth noting as well, and I think it's something that um, was expressed really well in the introduction to the book about what, and I think what the whole book taken together shows really effectively is what neoliberalism is really good at doing is adapting itself to different, you know, national and, and local contexts, and it's very good at cloaking itself in the sort of values or the symbols that are relevant to that particular society so i think you know what we can see in wales and you see it throughout all the themes in this book and and the title like the welsh way is that what what is used here is that appeal to like wales is you know radical communitarian history and and values and traditions as a, as a cover, as like a um, veneer for just deeply neoliberal approaches and frameworks across all policy areas. And, you know, that that communitarianism and radicalism is a good thing, but it's something we need to reclaim. And it's something that we need to stop people using as a as a badge to cover up um, actually quite um, harmful um, and um, timid policies that they're pursuing.
0: I just realised we've got a certain chunk into this and haven't defined neoliberal. But for the purposes of those listeners who may not be as you know comfortable with that term, would anyone like to have a go at sort of providing a, a quick definition of it?
1: You're gonna get three different answers here, Matthew. <laughs> That's the beauty of um, neoliberalism. It is it you know it can be described in in different ways. But yeah, Kieran, you have a have a, a start.
2: Well, I I was going to say it's difficult to have a crack at trying to de- define neoliberalism in anything less than Twenty minutes, maybe. Look, the problem with the concept of neoliberalism is that people have—I mean, I'm doing it myself right now—that I'm it, it becomes cloaked in this idea that it's a very difficult thing to understand, or that it that it's something that is beyond the reach of pragmatic empirical analysis. What neoliberalism is basically is an extreme form of free market economism, where everything is open to privatization and everything is open to being reduced to numbers, right? And, and reduced to its its monetary value. And so the way that neoliberalism as an economic model plays out is by privatizing sections of the of society and institutions that were formerly under public ownership or public control, but it doesn't just have economic effects. And I think that's the point we're trying to make in the book is that what neoliberalism does is, is not only privatize everything, and privatized institutions but has its effect on social and cultural attitudes and the ways that we carry ourselves and and the way that we experience our, our lives and that can be through the ways that you know we've become hamstrung by identity and the idea of of the self and individualism and you know brought more broadly the atomization of society into feeling that we don't belong as parts of a community, but we're out to look for ourselves. So yes, it's a it's a far-reaching concept, but I I I think it's not too difficult for most people to get to grips with. And I think have a look at the introduction, which gives a bit a bit maybe a slightly clearer overview than that. But I think that's broadly it for me.
1: I mean in terms of um, the teaching that I do obviously I teach political philosophy at uh, university level. It is sometimes difficult to get clear, erudite, if you like, discussions of, of neoliberalism with, without wanting to um, go after a bit too too much. I think that the introduction is is something that most people who are interested in politics could pick up and from that get a good sense of what neoliberalism is. And as I mentioned earlier, I think what's really valuable about the book, in addition to providing perhaps that sort of initial conceptual understanding of what neoliberalism is, is how that actually plays out in practice because as Kieran was saying, you know, it's an ideology ultimately which impacts on the way in which we think and and behave and organise league tables in education is, is a good example where, you know, you take something that's used in the private sector in order to normally sort of encourage people to work harder and to do this that and the other. And that's a way of organising, it's a certain managerialism. you bring that into, you know, obviously education, which has, in Wales, always been largely public sector, and it changes the way people do things. And, yeah, I guess from my point of view as a philosopher, I would always come at neoliberalism first from the point of view of that mindset and and the philosophy, if you like, but, you know, depending on who you speak to and the experience of it, they'll come at it from, from a different point of view, which is, I guess natural for what is an all-embracing ideology that defines you know so much across our society
3: i think it's important as well, isn't it in these discussions sometimes there's a tendency to um to focus a lot on like terminology or the words and and worry that these definitions are like too difficult for people to understand but actually people every day see the consequences of neoliberalism in their communities, like on their streets, people talk about that with each other all the time. Like it, you know, maybe not in that terminology, but when you're looking at, you know, the it plays out every day in people's experiences, you know, when you're losing facilities from your local community, when developers can come in and do whatever they want, when you can't afford a house in the place that you've grown up in because of the free market and you know the reason everyone's energy bills are going to go up this winter as well like it has real world effects on people and people can see the effects of it in their everyday lives so um, and people understand um often what what's going on in it you know we shouldn't be too scared of having these conversations and and talking about things in that political way.
2: I absolutely agree with what Mabby just said and and the fact that people are able, most people are able to understand the impact that neoliberalism has on their lives. At the same time, I think it is valuable to name things. Neoliberalism is not a perfect word and it's not a perfect name for what is happening in our society. And I think it's it's worth remembering that. But it's nevertheless a valuable tool for thinking about the, the dynamics that are in play right now. And I think hopefully that's what the book does, is, is partly define neoliberalism, but also try to complicate it and look at its broad general effects, right, on people's lived experience. Yeah, hopefully that makes sense.
0: <laughs> that's great. I want to touch on something that you raised earlier about the sort of one partyism of, of Wales. What effect do you think? Wales is affected when party state has had on our politics and, and, and political discourse. Do you think that's why this prevailing orthodoxy, i.e. that Labour in Wales are, is, a, is a socialist party, has allowed, been allowed to become dominant?
1: That's actually something that's been important to me in terms of working on this book and, and something of a personal preoccupation as um, someone who spent a lot of time in the Labour Party. Um, I wrote the piece last year. In the summer, called um, well, it was on quietism or political quietism. It was discussing really the effects of one-partyism, as you described them, in particular on the public discussion and essentially the way in which you know one-partyism has made it very difficult for dissent really to be expressed in Wales in any sort of meaningful, far-reaching way, because the Labour Party is so sort of um, yeah, as it were, integrated into our institutions beyond the Senedd and is part of so many. Um, aspects of the, the sort of Welsh public sphere it makes it difficult for people to sometimes raise their voice to really respond in robust ways and to tackle those issues that we need to tackle in an honest and open way and it's so much more difficult obviously in a relatively small country small population not a huge critical mass and so from my point of view you know one of the yeah important parts really of working on this book and putting in the hours was, I guess, putting my money in my mouth was us thinking, well, you know, it's time for people to actually stand up and say some of these things and try to get that level of honesty integrated into our wider political discussions. So I'm looking forward to the response to the book in a way, because um, I think, you know, in some quarters, it might just be an attempt to sort of quash it and ignore it and, you know, um, say this, that and that, the other about the editors and the authors, uh, but from my point of view, you know, there's a wide array of contributors there all pointing to things that we really need to address. And it was good to hear Delamour say that it's a wake up call, because I think in many ways that's, that's what we
3: need. Like everything he was saying there is like, I think we can all recognise that about Wales, can't we? If you've spent any time involved in in Welsh politics or um, the public sphere, what there is of it. There's a lack of critical thinking about our politics, about our devolution and the policies that have been pursued. Politics should be about contestation, it should be about conflict in a generative way. You know, that that's a good thing. And but we don't have it. We have this um this very, very like shallow consensus politics that ultimately doesn't really amount to anything. And, And really, like obviously that is. Partly a result of, um, you know, one party dominance, but I don't think it's just that. And I do think it's a it's a wider problem much beyond the Labour Party. It's you know it infects all the political parties and Welsh politics and um, public life in general.
0: Do you think that whether it's due to economics or whether it's due to uh, the levers that the Welsh government have to pull in terms of their legislative competencies? Do you think intrinsically that the Welsh government wants to do more? Do you think this is a, a lack of willing to do more? Do you think it's a, they are in their own way naturally so inbuilt into the neoliberal consensus that they know no better? Or do you think that if they did have more power, whether that be legislative or economic, that they would do more?
2: Um, I think I think under the present settlement, yes, they can do more. Um, and yes, they should be doing more. Whether or not they would do so if they had the the levers of power is a bit of a moot point because they're not asking for more power. So, uh, and I think that's where we need to be looking is looking ahead. Uh, well, we need to be realistic about where we are as a society, and that is we are living in a in a broken society and we need to be asking serious questions about what comes next and and, and fundamentally i don't think Welsh Government are, are asking those are doing enough to ask those questions
3: I think as well you know we've been continually promised haven't we throughout the history of devolution that more powers is going to deliver better outcomes for for the Welsh people and as this book shows that just hasn't happened You know, whether you talk about, like, the the powers we have or the financial constraints, like, yeah, those things are real and they do affect, like, the parameters that the government is working within. But, you know, politics is about choices, isn't it? And the Welsh government has repeatedly made certain choices which which have favoured, like, a certain economic, social settlement. I think, you know, let's look at, like, the pandemic um, and the decision to... um, Suspend like land transaction tax and and make that lower, you know, to the benefit and to protect the wealth of homeowners and landlords rather than tenants and young people who now are being completely priced out of their communities all across the country. That was a decision. That's not due to the constraints of the powers they have or the funds that are available to them, because that's completely within their gift. So I think when you scrape the surface of these different policy fields and go beyond like the radical rhetoric, as the chapters in this book do, you can see that there's a repeated pattern in terms of the policy decisions that they're making.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting tension as well, isn't it? And takes us back to perhaps some of the aspects of the neoliberalism we were talking about, where on the one, well, specifically in its Welsh incarnation, if you like, that you have this radical rhetoric on the one hand. You often have as well legislation that is really promising. You know, there's a chapter in there by Francis Williams, an excellent one, on the future generations uh, legislation and how that has failed to deliver. So it's really interesting phenomena in a way, the way in which we've built up um, this sort of mythology that Ciarán was referring to, this idea of who we are and what the evolution represents, that we have, you know, some of the right forms of uh, narrative or or discourse and that, you know, if you looked at it just at that sort of uh, superficial level, things would seem to be quite, uh, you know, healthy in terms of socialism in Wales and people have kind of interpreted the um, Senate result in that way, haven't they? In contrast to what happened in England and the councils, you know, there's this idea that that was because, you know, Mark Drakeford and the Labour Party represent the real, you know, proper red socialism. Uh, and I think a lot of this book is about trying to expose what's actually going on beneath uh, the surface. Mm-hmm. And that actually, because of these prevailing tendencies, these sort of neoliberal techniques, if you like, that go back a long time before devolution, Actually, there's this massive disjuncture between often what we say, what we expect of each other, and then the actual realities. So in some senses, you know, you could look at this book and say it's, you know, nid dalle as we say in Welsh, you know. OK, you're saying you're going to do this. This is what you've said is, you know, that, that uh, the Senate is all about. Well, actually, let's go on and deliver then. And mm-hmm. I think in those terms, you know, there's a huge amount of agency and power that the Senate has but it doesn't actually use in a way that reflects a lot of this rhetoric and the discourse that emanates, not just from the Labour Party, but, you know, other politicians as well.
3: Yeah, and like who references, you know, the election result there, I think, you know, an important important part of that election result was that 47% was the turnout for the election. So I don't think, you know, any of us, can really look at that and claim that that's a ringing endorsement of Welsh political radicalism or the devolution settlement. And, you know, ultimately people people aren't inspired by what's being offered and people don't feel that it's making a material difference to their lives and, and that's what needs to change.
0: What's your analysis been of the pandemic response from the Welsh government? Do you think that that has moved them away from their? Previous neoliberal actions, or have they just uh, used it as an excuse to to do even more in that in that area? Do you think
2: the, the nature of the question suggests something? There's something wrong with the way that we're thinking about the way that neoliberalism operates, right? I don't think any of us are suggesting that you know any of the actors within Welsh government are versed enough in the the concept of free market economies or neoliberalism as a concept. That they are direct agents of it. But what neoliberalism does is implicate people in its ways of, of, of thinking and behaving. And I, I'm sure on a personal level, there's plenty of people in Welsh government who most of us w- wouldn't have a problem with getting on with. But the point is that what le- neoliberalism is doing is, is, is veiling the possibilities of what is achievable right now politically. And I, I think Yes, the, the pandemic is a good example of that. I mean, what the pandemic was for many, in, in many ways for, for Welsh Government, I think, was, was a gift in, in that it, it it offered the Welsh population, uh, well, for a start, it, it brought the idea of, of devolution way up on the agenda in a way that that it hadn't previously. And I think more people are well aware of devolution now as a result of the pandemic. Um, what it also enabled the, the, the Labour Party to do in particular was to bring out plenty you know wheel out much of the rhetoric about the way that it was doing things differently and you know defining itself against tory kind of just just how callous the, tory, the, the tories had been handling the situation but ultimately if you you don't have to look far beneath the surface to see that you know the poor poorest communities in wales were hit hardest by the by the pandemic and that are probably going to be hit harder again through this winter and so I think the question really isn't about the ways in which Welsh government have handled the pandemic. I think in many ways it did they did what they could and rolled out the vaccine quickly enough. But we need to, you know, moving forward, we need to be asking the questions of why those communities were hit as hard as they were and think about, yeah, how how things move forward in the in the coming months, really.
1: Yeah, there's a question, isn't it, q and I think, about the timing of the book as well as an interesting one, because obviously a lot of this was put together in some senses during that period, but actually it's not sort of written in hindsight from a kind of post the height of the pandemic in any sense. And I think one one way of answering the question, Matt, is to say that, well, if you look at a lot of these chapters that were written pre-pandemic or, you know, just at the outset, that actually all of that probably still holds, even though we're in a very different world now. And in some senses, I think that's, you know, important in terms of the timing of the book, if we think about a lot of this rhetoric around build back better and the opportunities that we have to do things differently. You know, people have been reflecting on their everyday lives, what's important to them. And, you know, going back to the philosophical aspects of neoliberalism, the importance of, you know, wealth and, you know, materialism and so forth. All these kind of questions have been in play now in the last kind of year in a way that they weren't before then. And unfortunately, you know, for my money, I think we're going to just slowly sort of creep back to where we were previously. And that's why I say, if you look at the book, if you look at some of the chapters and the discussions in there, all those problems continue. And Mm. now is actually an opportunity to look at some of these things and think, well, what can we really generally do in a radical way that can sort of address the pre-pandemic issues that people now so happy to recognise as being just, you know, things we didn't really... Understand as being so deeply problematic.
0: So you, you're mentioning the chapters there, Hugh. Um, I'm going to give each of you a little opportunity just to, to, to sort of talk about your own individual chapters, but as well, I wanted to ask you all if you could recommend uh, one other chapter from the book that you particularly enjoyed or you think is particularly important uh, that people should, should make sure they read. Um, Mavli, do you want to start?
3: oh uh, <laughs> that's that's really hard, yeah, there's so many good um so many good pieces in there, and they cover so many different areas. I think one that would be good for people to read as a sort of illustration of everything we're talking about is um, Robert Idris's chapter on um, nuclear policy in Wales, because I would genuinely defy anyone to read that chapter and say that we live in um, a progressive country where all levels of government prioritise communities over the needs of international capital.
0: And what was your chapter about?
3: Um, so my chapter is about uh, neoliberal feminism in Wales and how that um sort of plays out so basically I look at how a concept called um, progressive neoliberalism which is a concept by Nancy Fraser who talks about some of the stuff we've addressed really about how neoliberalism has sort of adopted the sort of progressive recognition politics that's come from um, a lot of the social movements that first started in the 60s like feminism black power movement LGBT rights movement and so on and what it's done is stripped those movements of anything truly transformative and just taking the bits around um you know changing social attitudes or changing processes getting different people into power um who will still um, enact neoliberal policies and he uses that as sort of a gloss over um, neoliberal economics which is you know um, what we've been talking about and I think you know that sort of feminism is very ingrained in Wales um, and there's again been a bit of a complacency about our um, work on gender equality um because ultimately when um, and and what I try and analyse in the chapter is when you look at the policies that have been pushed forward, like they've not made a material difference to most women's lives in Wales and what they're pushing is a certain brand of feminism that's about advancing the interests of you know, certain privileged uh, middle-class women relative to men of their own class.
0: Thank you. Kieran, do you want to go next? What your, what's your chapter about and, and what other chapter in the book would you highly recommend?
2: I'll start with what I'd recommend. I, I'd recommend the whole book, obviously, but um, I think the whole book does does provide um, lots of different kinds of insights and, and voices. And I, and it, it's important to think of it as a whole, I think. I wouldn't want to um, single any one particular person out, although I am really happy with the the, the final chapter, which is an interview with um, a small group of people from, from Butte town. And I, um, you know, young people who are, the next generation really and, and, and you know, the chapter is really an opportunity for them to voice some of their, their worries and concerns and hopes for the future and I'd like to think that the, it provides um, a more hopeful outlook on the future of Welsh politics than the majority of the more uh, seasoned uh, writers um, that, that make up the rest of the book uh, so I was really happy with that and I think it's an excellent um, way to, to close the book. My own chapter is about the implementation of cultural policy in Wales, and looking at the ways that um, the art, mainly uh, the way that art, the arts are funded in Wales. And I think one of the issues has been over the last few years is that, uh, well, for a start, it's very difficult to get to uh, to justify funding in the arts given the state of the rest of the economy. The problem that that's led to is that. What the arts council, in in particular, now demand of artists, I think, is is just really too much. I mean, what they're expect they're, they're expecting artists to jump through ever tinier, more gymnastic hoops to be able to get very, very small amounts of money, and not only that, that they're they're asking artists to justify their work in terms of its sort of social utility. And I think that's a really dangerous path to to walk down um, in terms of art funding the arts because if you start doing that, then you start you know as neoliberalism does it's, it places limits on what it's possible to say, and so the chapter is really about about that problem really that um, of trying to force artists to fit a, a certain remit. And I think, I mean, I you know I come from a cultural studies background, and I think anyone in my field would would hopefully argue that you know, what culture is about is about expanding the possibilities of, of thought and expanding the, um, the ways that we think about and analyse things, uh, not about trying to think within very you know, defined limits. So it's, it's, it's kind of, a, a, you know, I'm trying to make the argument that we need to offer artists more money for a start, but also the freedom to do what they think they need
1: to do, not, not what we think they need to do.
0: Thank you, Kieran. Hugh, what about you? I'll
1: try very briefly to summarise what's in my uh, chapter. Uh, I suppose it's one of the few chapters in there that sort of explicitly approaches the issue of independence and the question of greater powers for, for Wales. And partly it's a sort of critique, really, of how, um, well, in my view, neoliberalism and neoliberal thinking ideology is partly, I feel, Uh, responsible for the fact that the Labour Party in particular takes such an inadequate um, approach to the issue of of independence, half-baked, if you like, because the premise uh, of the argument really is that neoliberalism as an ideology is one that's all about the state stepping back. It's about handing responsibility over to uh, the private sector in particular or individuals. And so it's anathema in a way to any sort of strong political beliefs or aspirations and when you look at the way in well, it's quite painful actually <laughs> we've had enough chats about this Matthew the way in which Labour tried to deal with the challenge of further powers and, and independence the way in which often they sort of shy away from arguing for more powers in areas like welfare uh, and criminal um, justice and so forth but that as I say is, is a symptom of this neoliberal attitude that actually you know politicians should do all they can to allow other parts of society to lead, as it were, and define how it is that society is structured. So that's the sort of argument I, I put across there, and, and argue as well, I suppose, in a more broadly sort of philosophical sense, that actually part of the issue in Wales is the sort of deeper lying political culture, where actually a lot of these ideas, the motifs from yesterday, if you like, you know, our radical background, um, that that really now is becoming less and less meaningful because actually it's so far detached from the realities of our political debates um sort of political education the state of uh, political society if you like but it really really is a sort of yeah time of crisis in the sense in that way and that we need to start having these meaningful political discussions in all different ways but particularly around these crucial questions around what the senate does with its powers and you know what more powers we should be getting as quickly as possible. Yeah, with regards to, um, you know, which chapters I'd recommend, obviously the same as and I'd say, you know, take your time to pick and choose the uh, chapters, but eventually it's worth looking at all of them. Of course, uh, as a philosopher, I, you know, without wanting to embarrass, I'd probably sort of uh, veer towards Marbury's chapter at the start because it's really important in terms of setting the scene. She discusses, as you mentioned, Nancy Fraser, who's a crucial thinker in terms of understanding challenges of modern politics yeah that last interview as Cian said is really good in terms of I think a last more positive note to finish on but if I have to then choose someone else um, for me Catherine Ashton's chapter is a really nice one and one of the good um, chapters I think for somebody in particular who's perhaps new to politics and if you really want to see the connection between everyday life the way in which it impacts upon people And then the wider structures. It's a great chapter, I think, because she starts, you know, up in Bedlinog on a walk with her children. And then from that very sort of personal experience, her lived reality, she then goes on to discuss the challenges that parents face in in our society. And actually some of the concrete actions that we could be taking um, regardless of the limited powers of the Senate. So, um, yeah, a good one to start with, I think, that.
0: Well, I just wanted to say thank you so much to, uh, to you all and to tell everyone to, to buy the Welsh Way. Um, but thank you so very much to, to Mably, Hugh, and Kieran for talking to us this evening. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please do not forget to find us on Medium at HereIthBlogCymru, on Facebook at HereIthBlogCymru, and on Twitter at HereIthBlog. Thank you for listening to HereIth. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe. Rate and review.